The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. gives us the progress of the gospel and that you can look at that progress both in terms of geographical extension and if you pick up on that little statement uh, which is worded in several ways but uh, uh, you know the, the church grew and grew or the word that grew and whatever expressed in various ways and um, I, I think it cannot be a coincidence that you can take each of those statements and uh, view them as signaling some kind of shift, uh, important uh, clues uh, with regard to uh, shifts in the narrative, so that in the first uh, five chapters um, uh, you have uh, an emphasis on on Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area. Then as a result of Stephen's ministry, the gospel extends over to uh, Samaria and even beyond. Um, now, here in, um, in chapter 9, we had had one of these summary statements in verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord, which can be like a signal. Okay, we're done with this one. Now, here's the next step. And the next step uh, focuses on the spread of the gospel now not so much geographically, although there's a bit of that element because you go into the coast, but more important in terms of uh, a Gentile uh, being, um, receiving the Spirit. But this is not just a Gentile, and, and that's very, very important for us to keep in mind. This is a, a God-fearing Gentile. And uh, God-fearers, uh, you may recall, were individuals who pretty much identified with the synagogue, I mean, with Jewish uh, worship. They were not proselytes, that is, they did not submit themselves to the law, particularly through circumcision, but uh, other features of the ceremonial law as well. Uh, but uh, they were regarded as worshiping the true God. And uh, within this historical context, we have this uh, exceedingly significant movement from the Jewish setting specifically. Uh, you know, they had already been a movement toward the Samaritans, but now toward the Gentiles. And uh, the thing that I would like to focus on is not just what happens there in Cornelius's house but uh, how the Christians react to it. And I'm talking about chapter 11, uh, very beginning of the chapter. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, See, you 
can't afford to downplay the significance of this reaction. Peter himself struggled with that one. And if it had not been for the vision and the roof, he very likely would have resisted going to the house of Cornelius. Now he had already, he was already in the house of, of a tanner. Um, so in a sense you could argue that he's already a little bit prepared for this. But he was very hesitant. And it was only when he saw the work of God in that house that he, I think, was relieved. These Christians, these are the Jewish Christians, of course, are very unhappy that Peter has actually eaten with uncircumcised men. So Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. And there's a little um, summary of, of those events. And then um, uh, in verse 15, when he mentions that um, the Spirit that came on, on these Gentiles, told verse 17, So if God gave them the same, the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, I think it is very important for us um, to read a statement like this and try to put it in a realistic human context. Not to uh, suggest that Luke is not giving us accurate information here, but to recognize, I mean, when was the last time in any church when you have people really angry about something and somebody stands up, gives a little speech, and everybody is happy? That's just not the way it works. And uh, I don't think Luke is trying to suggest that necessarily. I mean, he is saying the church as a whole, you know, understood and confirmed. And, and he, he is indeed trying to present a positive picture, which I think is an accurate picture. But I don't think he's trying to, to give exhaustive information about what was happening. And, and I think it would be silly for us to think that uh, there would not have been some other people around that uh, were not all that uh, thrilled by what they were hearing. Now, still within this particular section of the book of Acts, uh, the word, you see, is moving, and it moves not only to someone like Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, but there is uh, something else happening, and it has to do with the people, as we read in verse 19, who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Why does Luke make that point? Because I think he wants us to connect what Stephen was doing with what we're going to be reading in just a moment here. These people persecuted, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Only to Jews, of course. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 
Now, uh, there's a little bit of a problem here, and it has it has to do with a, a textual problem. I don't know whether. Uh, yeah, the um, it, it's really a controversial problem. Um, the the text that you have in the um, in in our standard uh, text right now is Hellenistas Hellenists. There is a variant uh, that says Hellenas, Greeks. Now, the NIV translation, by, by translating Greeks, seems to be taking Hellenas as the uh, better reading. Um, and uh, the, the evidence is too... Um, uh, it is very, very difficult to make a decision purely on textual grounds. But I do think that the reading Hellenistas, Hellenists, um, may be a little better, and, and perhaps it, it doesn't make that big a difference. Um, because either term that you take, you know, you, you could look at it as, as referring to, uh, um, I mean, you could still have a difference of opinion as to what, what kind of people are we talking about here. I want to argue, although I cannot prove it just from this passage, that um, the people to whom the gospel is being presented now are people in the same category as Cornelius. In other words, we're not talking about some, not yet, to some uh, totally unrestricted preaching of the gospel to pagans. Uh, we're still within the context of individuals who were not Jews, but who did identify themselves to some degree with uh, Judaism. At least they understood and, and had some kind of uh, association with the synagogue. I cannot prove that. I think as we go on, you'll see why I tend to take it in, in this way. At any rate, verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Why? Well, these guys were Presbyterians. Um, they get news of some kind of ministry going on there. We don't know what's going on. Uh, we've got to do things decently in order. Uh, and we've got to find out what's happening and make sure that uh, you know, our um, book of order is being followed. Um, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Then we have the little story about um, they're going to Jerusalem with an offering because of the uh, uh, <clears throat> famine. In chapter 12, we have um, 
what appears to be a uh, side story with regard to um, uh, Herod Agrippa and uh, Peter. But uh, he picks up on Saul again in chapter 13. Um, although you need to look at the very end of chapter 12, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So you already have a team you know, being formed here, uh, specifically a team that had been ministering in the diaspora and who were bringing the gospel not only to the Jews but also to Greek-speaking people. Now, whether that, again, it's at least, here are the possibilities, remember, you, okay, you're dealing with the Jews for sure. You're also dealing, presumably, with Hellenistic Jews, if you take the Hellenistas, that variant in that way. Quite probably, it also includes not just Hellenistic Jews, but uh, Gentile God-fearers. But I don't think it includes yet pagans as such. And I think it is that next shift or next move that is the burden of the passage that begins here in chapter 13, where we're told that in Antioch there were many prophets and teachers, number of prophets and teachers, and uh, they receive a call from the Spirit to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a special work. So they're sent with, uh, and then John Mark goes with them, you remember, and they arrive in Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Well, Barnabas knows Cyprus. And it seems like the obvious place to begin as they move now the gospel. This is the next stage in the narrative, you see, where the gospel is now going to be taken to Asia Minor. Um, then you have this exceedingly significant event <clears throat> where the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, is converted. And... Um, a very subtle but clear signal is given to us by Luke about what's going on here when he says in verse 13 from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia up in Asia Minor where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now in that sentence, um, there's an enormous amount of information being conveyed to us somewhat indirectly and maybe I have a very fancy imagination but let me tell you what my what I think Luke is trying to, to say to us <clears throat> which may have been very obvious obvious to him and the people who were familiar with, with the whole story but for us it's very easily missed whenever people talk about poor John Mark the standard way of handling this is uh, John Mark got homesick and he just had to go back to mama 
Now, whatever the precise thing that was bothering John Mark, you know, all the thieves that were supposed to be up in Asia Minor in that area, or the threat of malaria, and all that stuff, whatever the specific thing, um, his leaving Paul and Barnabas is perceived as basically some kind of personal problem, that is a, some kind of deficiency in his own maturity, um, and so he returns. But you see, when you get to the end of chapter 15, and uh, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back to some of these churches, and Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul refuses, and there is this great altercation. I find it difficult to believe that um, if, if that had been the problem, uh, a minor, I mean, in a sense it's a minor thing, you see, because obviously you know, a young person can, can grow and, and, and whatever. I think something else is going on here. And um, part of our, of our help here is um, the way in which Luke here refers to the team when he says, Paul and his companions. Up to this point, as you probably know, uh, Luke has said always Barnabas and Saul. Now all of a sudden it's Paul and his companions. And this becomes the standard way of referring to the team with only one exception which is understandable as we will see in, uh, in, in just a little while. Now, why is, does Luke call Paul, Saul Paul all of a sudden? And uh, even more important, why does he put his name before Barnabas? Well, again, you know, one of the standard in, uh, explanations here is that uh, here is Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. And somehow, you know, in honor of him or whatever, Paul takes on the name Paulus. Well, and I guess you can't possibly disprove that, but I think uh, a little bit of reflection makes that exceedingly unlikely for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being the fact that, that uh, this you know, Saul, being a Roman citizen, would have had a Roman cognomen anyway, and uh, it is almost, uh, you know, without controversy, to, in my way of thinking, that his name was probably Shaul, Paulos, whatever. Um, he has, a, as a Roman citizen, he has his Hebrew name, to be sure, but he also has a Latin name. And um, I think the fact that it isn't simply the different name, but the switch in the order. Uh, that's probably what Luke wants us to be thinking about more specifically. And uh, my theory, again, it is not unique to me by any stretch of the imagination, but um, the, the most reasonable way to reconstruct this, I think, is to look at it this way. Something truly remarkable had taken place uh, here in Paphos. And what is remarkable about it is 
that for the first time that we can establish a pagan with no association with the synagogue becomes a Christian believer and therefore a part of the church. And I have to think that when uh, the team went back home, I mean, back to their tent or whatever, I don't know what they did, uh, they must have sat down and said, do you realize what has just happened? What implications does this have for what we're going to do? And as the days went by and, and they decided to cross over to the mainland there in uh, Asia Minor, maybe in the boat, they decide, undoubtedly, I think God is telling us that um, we ought to have a direct ministry to Gentiles. And uh, Saul, being having uh, ministered among Gentiles, presumably, and, or at least having a lot of contact, and, and showing perhaps some particular a gift or ability or whatever, um, becomes the leader of the party. And uh, some sort of decision is made that their ministry will not be tied down to the synagogue. And um, doesn't mean that they abandon the Jews. They always go to the synagogue first. But um, they're quite ready to go to the Gentiles directly. And you remember that's exactly what happens as they get to Antioch of, Antioch of Pisidia. And they preach in the synagogue and they're invited back. But uh, then as the God-fearers um, are attracted to, to this preaching, and as uh, probably Paul and Barnabas give the impression to the Jews that this Christian gospel makes things just too easy for the Gentiles, there is a reaction, and uh, they shake off the dust from their feet and go directly to the Gentiles. John Mark wasn't homesick. <clears throat> uh, John Mark was not afraid of thieves or of malaria. He was troubled by what he would have perceived as apostasy. <clears throat> that uh, Barnabas and Saul are taking this too far. They are in effect breaking uh, with the essence of what it means to be a Jew. And they are now viewing the Christian gospel as something that does not require Judaism. And you see, for us, you know, our reaction is, well, of course, so what? But for that early church, you, you could hardly think of anything more earth-shaking uh, than, than that. And John Mark couldn't quite handle that. And that is why, at the end of chapter 15, uh, Paul's 
concern didn't have to do with, you know, uh, some sort of uh, immaturity in the sense, you know, somebody, they have to grow up and, and act um, more mature. There was a theological issue at stake here. And Paul was not convinced that Mark was committed to the gospel to the Gentiles uh, in the way in which he needed to be committed for that ministry to uh, proceed. Now, um, you remember what happens here in this first journey. They go to these churches in the southern part of the province of Galatia. Uh, they strand Derby, you know, and uh, they make the rounds back and so on. And as you know, um, this is where things start getting complicated in terms of chronological problems and where do you put the letter to the Galatians. And uh, at a later point in the semester, we will spend quite a bit of time trying to solve the problem. What I, what I want to do, well, let me just to refresh your memory as to what, um, what is going on here. You remember that um, the basic problem, the basic conflict is whether the uh, council in Jerusalem related in chapter 15 of Acts uh, is or is not the same meeting described by Paul and Galatians 2. Okay. They look awfully similar and so you sort of start with that assumption, or most people have in the past. If it is the same meeting, obviously, Galatians must have been written after the council. And therefore, there's a tendency to date the letter to the Galatians during the third journey. And that's the position that I'm taking, that Paul wrote Galatians during the third journey, probably from Ephesus, although how can you prove that? Uh, the difficulty is that there are certain differences between Acts 15 and, Act, and Galatians 2 that are a little difficult to resolve. And um, these differences have been actually one of the main reasons, or at least one of the main arguments used by uh, critical scholars uh, to argue that the book of Acts is not reliable. And uh, the story of Acts 15 uh, is uh, particularly the business about the decree, that letter, is uh, thought to be either a figment of Luke's imagination or he really got confused with some other stuff. And um, it, it helps him in his uh, purpose, you will recall, of giving an idea that the early apostles were a happy bunch without any differences, but that wasn't the reality of the case. I mean, this is the usual critical position. In response to that, there has been a tendency among conservatives, uh, particularly leading, uh, I mean, following the lead of William Ramsey at the turn of the century. William Ramsey, you know, was a man, very, very uh, uh, distinguished archaeologist, particularly of Anatolia in Asia Minor. Uh, 
And he himself, um, you know, had been basically uh, brought up or at least had adopted the Tübingen School approach to this whole thing. But the more he did his archaeological work, the more he became impressed by the accuracy of Luke's uh, historical accounts. And he it got to the point where he says, this is ridiculous. Everything where you can check Luke against the sources, he checks out okay. Got to the point where he says, this is ridiculous. Everything where you can check Luke against the sources, he checks out okay. So, on what grounds are you going to say that the passages where you cannot check him out, because we can, don't have something else to, to confirm or deny, that he cannot be trusted there? His very high view of the reliability of the book of Acts uh, led him to address this problem, and he came up, I don't think, I don't know that it was his original idea, but, but he became the, the, the most forceful proponent of, of the view that, as a matter of fact, um, Acts 15 and Galatians 2 deal with two different meetings. That Galatians chapter 2 is talking about the famine visit, you know, at the end of chapter 11 of Acts. That's one point. The second point is that Galatians was written to the churches visited during the first journey. Um, soon after that famine visit, or rather, right after the first missionary journey, sorry. That the Jerusalem Council described in Acts 15 hadn't taken place yet. And therefore, there is no conflict between Galatians 2 and Acts 15 because you're talking about two different events altogether. Now, we'll... we'll Going to all of that, uh, my basic problem with that solution is that it's, it's too easy a solution. I mean, it's, it's the same sort of thing that you find whenever you are in the Gospels and Matthew and Mark don't agree with something. Oh, well, two different events. And that solves the problem. Uh, I don't think they're two different events. I think they're the same event. And we're just going to have to struggle trying to figure out how to deal with the differences. Um, in any case, um, you have the situation of either dating the letter to the Galatians early, say no, no later than the year 49, uh, so that uh, Galatians is written, and then after that you have the Jerusalem Council, and the first journey is up here. And if that's the case, it also settles another issue. Uh, the problem of North or South Galatia has to be South Galatia because Paul certainly hadn't been in North Galatia yet. Maybe he never was, for all we know. But um, that used to be a, a major concern, you know. Uh, as Lightfoot, for example, argues against the Tübingen school, um, he feels he needs that North Galatian hypothesis uh, and uh, the point is that during the second journey, 
there's that little statement about they went through the Galatian region, whatever, and, and uh, that must be up the north and this and the other. And so Galatians, um, which is written to the people in the northern region, not in the southern region, must have that letter must have been written at a later point, and so probably in the mid 50s, you know, uh, let's say 54, for doesn't really matter. So here are the two possibilities. And I am going to assume this one, as, I've, as I want to continue trying to present to you the historical background. Now, at a later point, we will go over the arguments you know, for and against and so on. Um, and uh, if you don't think I can make a case for this, then you're going to have to ignore everything that I'm going to say from this point on. But um, that's, that's my basic uh, line of thinking here. All right, the first missionary journey is covered in chapters 13 and 14 of the Book of Acts. And um, <clears throat> you read at the end of chapter 14 that they sailed back to Antioch. Uh, verse 27, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with disciples. Just a reminder, by the way, that Antioch of Syria was uh, probably the third largest city in the ancient, uh, well, in the, in the Roman Empire. You have Rome as the capital, Alexandria, the second largest, and Antioch was probably the third largest city. You have a, um, well, you will recall that Antioch had been the capital of the Seleucid Empire, and as such, it had become a cosmopolitan um, type city with a mixture of the native population, which would have been most of Aramaic-speaking peoples, and then the Greek culture. Uh, we know that uh, prob prob probably already in the first century, Greek would have been the dominant language in the city itself, and Aramaic would have been more prominent uh, in the rural areas. Antioch was also one very important center of diaspora Judaism. So you have a, a rather significant um, Jewish population in the city. And that all of that needs to be taken into consideration as you think of Antioch as becoming the, you know, the missionary headquarters, if you will, of Paul's work. So now they're in Antioch. We're told that the, at the end of chapter 14 that they stay there a long time with the disciples, whatever a long time is, and uh, come to chapter 15 without any question the most significant event in the development of the early church. Some men came down from Judea course, you're going north, but you always go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem, right? So some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, these are the people back in chapter 11 who maybe didn't say anything right then after Peter was finished uh, explaining himself from what had happened with uh, Cornelius, but who were more and more upset. Some of these were the ones who insisted that they send Barnabas up to Antioch to figure out what was going on. And um, now there's all this talk about uh, Paul having been to these pagan regions and preaching outside of the context of the synagogue. And the church in Antioch itself made up of uncircumcised believers. And so some people come from Judea, the mother church, and say, you have to be circumcised. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So uh, here again, you know, you're dealing with a very interesting ecclesiastical setting. The, um, the poor members of the church or churches in Antioch, and even their elders, didn't know what to make of this. Uh, it must have been... Uh, you know, the Bible so infrequently gives us an indication of what people were feeling inside. But I have to think that this must have been a um, tremendously upsetting uh, thing for these uh, Christians uh, in Antioch. Here are these people who in some way represent the mother church. Here are Paul and Barnabas whom we respect so highly and they are arguing sharply. You're not supposed to do that. And they don't know what to do. Um, that, that itself is significant. Here's this debate between these groups and the church in Antioch wasn't sure how to resolve the question. So they sent Paul and Barnabas, along with some other believers. So verse 3, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. All the brothers. Almost. Remember, I mean, again, you know, all Judea and Samaria came to be baptized of John the Baptist. Okay? All. Um, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And on the basis of his own experience with Cornelius, I imagine 
um, but maybe beyond that it says no doesn't make sense to um, uh, put this yoke of the law upon the uh, Gentiles verse 12 the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul now all of a sudden Barnabas and Paul because in that setting Barnabas takes some leadership apparently he is trusted by, by the Jerusalemites telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them when they finished James spoke up this is of course James the brother of our Lord not the brother of John who had been martyred in chapter 12 and um, he gives us this rather interesting hermeneutics of the Old Testament and I'm not going to get into that now but um, clearly the Gentiles are supposed to bear my name so it is my judgment verse 19 that we should make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals and from blood now um, and you know that that becomes the basis of the uh, letter or the decree so-called and there's a lot of debate about that you know there's a significant textual question to begin with because the Western text uh, gives a different um, rendering of the decree and uh, the um, the understanding of what's happening here that I am following and um, Lightfoot uh, argued for this and I think he was right but, but there's a lot of controversy is that you, you have to keep in mind by the way that the church here is making a decision that was really really magnanimous the Jewish church in Jerusalem was really under the gun they are already suffering for their faith but of course as Jews uh, they continue to live uh, within the context of Judaism there's no reason why they cannot continue going to the temple now there's no reason why they as Jews shouldn't have their own children circumcised there's no reason why they cannot uh, continue to um, abide by the ceremonial system and dietary laws and so on but they recognize that in Antioch you have a different there's a different constitution to the church and you have this large number of uh, Gentiles that I think could be viewed as God-fearers I mean they're part of the whole community now um, what to do about them I think it's Longenecker in his um, well actually it was the article that he wrote on Paul for the Zondervan Encyclopedia that was later published separately and uh, he, he and I think he's right he, he makes the point that probably the unbelieving Jews were watching very carefully what was going on here and that the decision to say 
it is possible for these Gentiles to be part of the church even though they are not Jews could have only spelled more misery for them more persecution just make life very very difficult for them but it was in recognition of what Paul would later speak of in terms of the freedom of the gospel, the gospel of freedom, the truth of the gospel, if you will, that uh, they said, no, we cannot force this upon them. However, however, please, Gentile brethren, don't make things any harder than they have to be. So, come on, stay away from these things that are particularly offensive to the Jewish community. And uh, in a sense, this was a compromise. Not in, in the bad sense, but, but in the good sense. They are recognizing that the gospel cannot be bound to an identity with Judaism. However, given this mixed situation we're asking you to abstain yourselves from those things that are really offensive uh, to the Jews now in this interpretation uh, assumes lots of uh, exegetical decisions and uh, we don't have the time right now we'll probably come back to some of these things at a later point but again all I'm doing remember in this initial set of lectures is to try to, to set an interpretive background, my own interpretation of what's happening. So at least you understand how I'm going about this uh, stuff. And then we can always examine the details uh, at a later point. So um, verse 30, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch and where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. Now you know what's going on here. In uh, verse 22, the apostles of uh, there in Jerusalem decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And I think the point is obvious uh, as a way of confirming uh, what Paul and Barnabas would say to, uh, uh, to the church in Antioch. It is not that there's a lot of distrust going on, but it's just common sense. You, you want to make things, uh, you know, go out of, of your way to show that you're dealing with things honestly and fairly and so on. So just so that people aren't going to misinterpret or, going to, or try to, to say, well, how can we trust Paul and Barnabas about this? So here are two representatives from the, from the church, and they confirm and attest to the truth of what's happening, and they even encourage them further. Um, after spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent him. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Now this is a time when Paul says, let's go back, visit the brothers. Barnabas wanted to take John, his cousin, but Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, paroxysmos, 
and they parted company. Barnabas therefore took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, who had been one of the two accompanying them from Jerusalem, uh, and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went now through Syria and Cilicia. In other words, instead of taking a ship, as they had, as he and uh, the others had done in the first journey, they go by land and begin to visit these churches that had been established in the southern part of the Galatian province. And uh, they see Timothy, and um, uh, he's uh, spoken so well of that uh, Paul wants to take him along on the journey. And then we're told, verse 3, that uh, remarkable statement, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In other words, uh, you know, these are small towns. Uh, you know what's going on. And the Timothy is the son of a, a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And everybody knew that they didn't have a, a baris, you see. They didn't have a little party and the circumcision. And uh, this is widely known among the Jews. And uh, Paul's ministry was always to go first to the Jews. And why create unnecessary troubles? Now, Timothy, having a Jewish mother, you know, had every right to be circumcised as a Jew, every reason to. And uh, Paul has no problems with it. And now, of course, this is one of the details that critical, critical scholars, you know, think you know, Paul would never have done this. But certainly from Luke's perspective, as he gives his narrative, he's giving us some very, very important information. In one chapter, Paul is really putting himself on the line uh, to defend the, um, uh, the freedom of the gospel among the Gentiles. They should not be forced to be circumcised. And the next chapter, he is circumcising someone whose father was Greek, but who was Jewish by all rights. As they traveled, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Now, very important point here. These churches in Galatia, according to the book of Acts, were familiar with the decree of Jerusalem so that, in my dating of the letter anyway, when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, he can assume that these Galatians are aware of what happened in that meeting and of the decree, which uh, is such a matter of controversy. So, um, the next step, you know, you have one, one more of these summary statements in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And now we're ready for the next stage in, in Luke's narrative. The gospel is going to go beyond Asia Minor to Europe. Well, what we call Europe. In those days, people didn't quite see things in that way. But, but it's certainly a major uh, shift, geographic shift, uh, in Paul's ministry. Do you remember the story about going to uh, Philippi? Uh, before they get to Philippi, they land in Neapolis, modern-day uh, Savala. Anyway, I was there once. Didn't realize it was Neapolis. It's great, this great hotel called Hotel Lucy. 
had a, had a bunch of uh, college students with me, seven, eight students with me, and we never made reservations anywhere. And we, we had just driven from Athens. We were on our way to Istanbul, getting tired. It's late. There's this sign, Hotel Lucy. Minneapolis. Maybe that's where Paul stayed. When the <laughs> and um, looked too luxurious for us, so uh, didn't stop and look for it. But we couldn't find anything, and it was just getting too dark. So I said, "Well, let's just check it out anyway." Brand new. It just, you know, just been finished. In fact, they were still working on little things here and there. And uh, I asked them how much, you know. And I forget what price they gave me. And it wasn't all that bad, but you know, we had a. a uh, a uh, budget to keep it. Well, we better not try to uh, do this. So I start walking away and this is, well, just a minute. How many did you say you have here? Nine in all. We stayed in Hotel Lucy. Three dollars per person per night. <laughs> right on the beach, the GNC. Stayed a second night, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's how good it was. Anyway, uh, Whatever Paul's experience may have been in uh, Neapolis uh, goes on to Philippi and then eventually to Corinth. And you remember how on his way back from the second uh, journey, some interesting things happened, all kinds of interesting things happened actually, but the ones that I want to call your attention to are number one, uh, chapter 18, Luke tells us about Paul uh, fulfilling his vow and having his uh, uh, hair a cut in fulfillment of the vow in St. Crea. Another interesting detail, why does Luke give us this kind of information? There's so much stuff that we would like to know and he doesn't tell us. Uh, and he keeps giving us these little details. Uh, they're important details. And, and part of what Luke is telling us here is Paul continued to live as a Jew. And he had no misgivings himself of uh, now, of course, from the critical point of view, this is viewed as, uh, again, part of uh, Luke's creativity here and trying to make things look, uh, you know, these are the good old times uh, and people were happy and no problems and whatever. But um, the other thing that's important is that on his way back, Paul stops in Ephesus. And when he sees what Ephesus is like and what an important city, he says, i got to come back here, which he will eventually. But... Um, you recall then in the third journey, Paul retraces his steps once again. He visits those churches in the southern part of, of Galatia and then heads for Ephesus. Now, while he's in Ephesus, <clears throat> well, let me uh, trace things back a little bit. As he went that, this is now the third time that he's visiting these churches. In South, in South Galatia. And um, in the course of his ministry, he has been facing increasing opposition to his ministry to the Gentiles. <coughs> I hope you understand that the council in Jerusalem, uh, again, would be a you know, fundamental mistake to assume that there was a unanimous opinion handed down that when the uh, 
vote was taken, there were no negatives or abstentions. Just had a faculty meeting last night that lasted to seven, and I had to abstain and even recorded my abstention on, on a decision that I think will. Well, that's another question. But um, whatever you know happened at that meeting, you may be sure that among these believers of uh, the party of the Pharisees, there were some who were very, very unhappy and probably disgruntled. And uh, a group formed, I don't know what their acronym was, but uh, Jews Against Paul or something. <laughs> and uh, they were determined, okay, if, um, if our mother church isn't going to take the stand that it should take. We're just going to have to create our own organization here and uh, begin to present quite a different understanding of what the gospel is all about. 